Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We ask, Lord, that as we uh, look more closely at Jesus' teaching in the temple, that you will teach us uh, to obey Jesus' authority. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The other day I was at the airport and I went through security and the security guards told me what to do. I had to take my laptop out of my bag and I had to put the bag on the container and then I had to stand just before the, uh, the metal detector and then I was told to walk through and I collected my bag and then I was told to go and stand near the guy who checks for explosive materials and I got swabbed down. And then when I was on the plane, I got told again what to do. I got told I had to listen to the safety message. I had to turn. I had to stop listening to or watching whatever it was I was doing and, and pay attention. And even as I obeyed their instructions, there's something about being told what to do that kind of just rubs me the wrong way. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think our culture is a culture where we don't like being told what to do. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's part of our culture, maybe it's part of our sinful selves, but whenever someone puts themselves in a position of telling us what, what to do, doesn't it just kind of rub you in the wrong way just a little bit? Even though like, I'm happy to submit to the security guards and I'm happy to submit to the, the hostess on the plane because uh, they're just doing their job. And uh, the ones at the airport were much happier than the ones that were showing up on the, on the picture a moment ago. But what if I saw those same security guards at Coles and they told me, uh, can you empty your pockets of your keys and your wallet and put them on this uh, here? And I'm, Well, that would be silly, wouldn't it? I'm not going to listen to them when they ask me to do that because, well, they don't have the authority. Or if I ran into the air hostess down at Swim Beach and she said, can you just stop what you're doing? I need to give you a safety demonstration. I'm like, actually, no, I'm not going to do that because you don't have the authority. Well, what we witness today as Jesus teaches in the temple is a bunch of people who don't actually want to listen to Jesus, who don't want to do what he says. And so they employ all sorts of tactics to undermine Jesus because if they can undermine Jesus, if they can show that Jesus doesn't have authority, well, they don't have to listen to him. They can ignore him. And all the people who are hanging off Jesus' words, as we saw at the end of chapter 19, If this group of people, these religious leaders it is, can show that Jesus doesn't have authority, well, suddenly all these people won't be listening to Jesus. So last week we saw Jesus enter Jerusalem. He came to his temple where we saw the significance of Jesus as Jesus being God's promised king. And then Jesus cleared the temple and he began teaching in the temple and the people were hanging off Jesus' words. But the religious leaders, they were unhappy, remember? They wanted to kill Jesus. Well, today we're zooming in to one of Jesus' teaching days in the temple and we get a front row seat. And as we look at this interaction in Luke 20, we'll see that these religious leaders, they question the authority of Jesus and then we see Jesus respond and we see his authority and then finally we'll look at knowing the authority of Jesus. So have your Bibles open at Luke chapter 20. We're going to spend some time there. So let's first look at questioning the authority of Jesus. So the religious leaders in verse 1, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders, they come up to Jesus. And we have to recognise that these religious leaders, 
They are the authority over the temple. Nothing normally would happen in the temple without their say-so. They're the gatekeepers. And Jesus has not gone through the proper channels. He hasn't sought out permission to teach in the temple. He didn't ask their permission to clear out the temple. Jesus has just waltzed in there like he owns the place, which is right because he does. And this has put the religious leaders out of kilter. You can imagine the religious leaders saying, who does this guy think that he is? The nerve of this guy. He can't do that. And so the leaders approach Jesus, and you can kind of imagine the leaders being a little bit full of passive-aggressive anger as they come to Jesus. And they say in verse 2, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? See, one thing that the religious leaders are very clear on is that Jesus is not working under their authority. They know they didn't commission Jesus to speak in the temple. So whose authority? Maybe if Jesus says his own authority, the religious leaders can just cast him as a a madman. If he says God's authority, they're likely to say, show us. Uh, But Jesus is not going to play their game. Jesus treats their demand as a question. He responds in verse 3, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or a human origin? Well, that's not what the religious leaders were expecting. Uh, John the Baptist was the forerunner to Jesus. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets who called people to repent and be baptized uh, because God's kingdom in Jesus was near. And God's people, probably the very ones that Jesus is teaching in the temple, would have gone out to John and have been baptized by him. The people in the temple think that John the Baptist was from God. Now, John, like Jesus, didn't have the authority of the religious leaders. He was operating under God's authority. He was sent by God. Now, the question that Jesus asks is a bit of a trick question for the religious leaders, and they know it. Have a look at verse 5. They discussed it among themselves and said, well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? Because I take it the religious leaders didn't go out and get baptized by John. But if we say of human origin, all of the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. You see their conundrum? They have to acknowledge that God is at work or face the anger of the crowds. And so they put on their best politician and they give a politician's answer. Verse 7, we don't know where it was from. Well, that's embarrassing for the religious leaders. They set out to undermine Jesus. But Jesus has undermined them and made them look rather silly in front of all the people in the temple. And then, so Jesus responds in verse 8, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now you might think this a little strange, that the religious leaders are trying to undermine God's plans in Jesus. Jesus is God's son in his temple, teaching the people. He's where he is meant to be. The religious leaders, rather than trying to undermine his authority, they should be worshipping him. They too should be hanging off Jesus' words. But 
they don't want to listen to Jesus. They prefer to do things their way. And so the way that they seek to do things their way is they want to undermine the authority of Jesus. And actually the same thing, sadly, still happens today. There are religious leaders who want to undermine the authority of Jesus. Uh, For an example, uh, some will say that Jesus was a product of his culture that his words and his teachings were a product of his culture. That Jesus is, what Jesus taught was good for then, but it's not good for now. We are now more progressive. We've loosed the shackles of our old traditions and we understand more. And so instead of Jesus speaking God's word, and then God's word, Jesus is said to be irrelevant, to speaking irrelevant things because they were good for then, but they're not for now. Uh, Throughout the Anglican Church, actually, uh, there is a situation where this is happening, uh, where church leaders, in their desire to be culturally relevant, have taken Jesus' teaching about marriage and effectively said that what Jesus teaches doesn't matter. Now, while we as a church, we want to show God's love to all, no matter who they are, no matter what their sexual identity is, because God's love is for everyone. But at the same time, we don't want to twist Jesus' teachings. But what has happened, and uh, you might have seen it in the news over the last couple of weeks, this is just uh, one example of uh, it happening throughout the world, is that in the UK, in their synod, they said it's okay to bless same-sex marriages. When Jesus says that marriage should be between a man and a woman, and that all sexual expression outside that marriage relationship is sin, whether it be a de facto relationship, a same-sex relationship, or a one-night stand. But what is happening is that the church leaders in the UK are declaring that something which Jesus calls sin is a good thing from God and should be blessed by him. It's a decision that says, well, Jesus' words are irrelevant. It undermines Jesus' authority. It says that what Jesus teaches in Matthew 19 doesn't really matter. That our cultural moment is more important than taking Jesus and his authority seriously. And, like in Jesus' time, it's coming from church leaders, from church bishops. Now, as I say this, Uh, please be assured that here at St. James we will keep hanging off Jesus' words. We will keep teaching Jesus' words. We'll put his words into practice. Our new bishop, Daryl Parker, if you listened to his sermon from the installation service last week, made the same commitment for our diocese. So even in our culture, where Jesus' words can become hard to hear, We don't want to undermine his authority. Jesus' words will always be relevant. And because as we'll see in our next point, Jesus does not want to leave us guessing about whose authority he is acting under. And so in the form of a parable, he tells us whose authority Jesus has. So the authority of Jesus... Now, here Jesus tells a parable. A parable is a story that reveals a truth about God's king and his kingdom. And it acts as a warning to the religious leaders. It's the parable of the tenants. It's the story of a landlord renting out his business to some farmers. 
The agreement was that they'd farm the vineyard and the landlord, landlord would get some of the profits. Seems reasonable. Except the tenants were a nightmare. A landlord's worst scenario. They didn't pay for their rent. They weren't going to. In fact, it would be the perfect story for a current affair. And a current affair actually had a story like this, where a lady in Cairns rented out a room to some tenants and then the tenants stopped paying rent and the, ten the landlord couldn't get the tenants to move out and then uh, the landlord had to go away and then on her return found the locks had been changed. A nightmare scenario. A current affair would have loved Jesus' story. Because Jesus tells the situation where he went to collect his rent from the dodgy tenants of the vineyard. In verse 10, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. The tenants do not respect the authority of the landlord. They don't respect his servant. The landlord sends a second servant in verse 11. And the same thing happened. They beat him and treated him shamefully. And then he sends another in verse 12. They wounded him and threw him out. No respect no intention of paying the rent. And now the landlord is in a predicament. What is he going to do? He has to do something right, otherwise he's going to lose the vineyard. And so in verse 13, we see his plan. He says, what shall I do? And he concludes, I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. See, the owner is vested in his vineyard, and he sends his son, whom he loves. Surely this will work. But no, these really are nightmare tenants, verse 14. But when the tenants saw the son, they talked the matter over and said, this is the heir. They said, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Their greed, their selfishness stopped them from acknowledging the authority of the landowner. And then it says in verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, this is a shocking situation. We know it's a shocking situation because in verse 16, the people listening to Jesus tell the story say, God forbid. They can't imagine the situation. They are horrified. These are people who probably work for landlords themselves or are landlords themselves. They know the landlord's authority and they are shocked by the audacity of the tenants to kill the son, to kill the heir. What a shocking scenario. Now, the people listening, if they had ears to hear, they would have been able to recognise that the landlord is God the Father, that the tenants are the religious leaders, and the vineyard is the flock of God's people that they are to care for. The servants who were beaten and thrown out were God's prophets, God's messengers who they did not want to listen to. And the son the loved son, is Jesus. God has sent his son to his people. But the religious leaders, they want to get rid of Jesus because they don't want to listen to him. They don't want to do what he says. They don't want to acknowledge his authority. Now, there are two things that stand out for us in this parable. The first is that Jesus' authority comes from God. It's in Jesus' indirect way of saying, my authority comes from God. I am the beloved son. God loves his people, his vineyard, 
And so he sends his son. And so Jesus' authority should not be undermined because it comes from God. Jesus, as God's son, has the full authority of God. Jesus is legit. He can rightly teach us how to live because of where his authority is from, from God. The second thing to notice is the tenants, the religious leaders. They actually have no authority to reject the son. They have no authority to kill the son, which is ultimately what they end up doing. In fact, God tells them in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. The religious leaders are out of line. They're kind of like the, the airport security. Oh, sorry, they're kind of like a person at airport security refusing to listen to the authority of the security guard when they say, take the laptop out of your bag. They might have the best intentions. They might be really sincere that what they want is right. But here they are clearly in the wrong. They reject Jesus' authority to the point where ultimately they will kill the son. Now that is shocking. And it's easy for us to look back 2,000 years, having come to church this morning, to think, well, how could they do that? Surely they could see right. But actually, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we too have this tendency, like the tenants, to undermine Jesus' authority. See, we undermine Jesus' authority when we don't listen to him, when we don't deny ourselves and follow him, those moments when we choose sin over godliness or self-dependence instead of humility and prayer, hate instead of love, greed instead of generosity. And it's shocking that the only way that we could be forgiven for those things is that the son would have to die. Because we undermined God's authority. Jesus will go and he will die on the cross. He will shed his blood so that we can be forgiven. Now, so far we've seen the religious leaders question Jesus. We've seen Jesus respond indirectly, uh, but at the same time showing that his authority comes from God. And now Jesus really brings the message home and calls us to know his authority And so we're at our our third and final point. Know the authority of Jesus. In the parable, Jesus said the landlord would return in verse 16. He would return and kill the tenants and give the vineyard to someone else. And in context, Jesus is saying that Jesus is saying the Jewish religious leaders who have rejected God's authority and Jesus' authority will be removed. They will face judgment. And so Jesus now turns to the religious leaders in the crowds and he asks another question. Verse 17. Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now those words seem cryptic at first, don't they? Like a crossword puzzle clue. I don't know about you, but cryptic crosswords drive me crazy. 
I hate them because I never know the answer. They're always too cryptic. But once we understand where the clue comes from, it makes a lot more sense. And I think that's the case for us with Jesus' words. They might seem cryptic, but once we understand where they come from, they make a whole lot of sense. See, the first part of the quote comes from Psalm 118. The the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And it's talking about how God's people have rejected God, yet God is their salvation. Now, a cornerstone is the first stone laid that sets the direction of two walls. It's the foundation stone. Uh, In Windsor, New South Wales, where we served for a while, the building there is the second oldest church building in Australia, and it has a cornerstone uh, with a plaque. I've got a picture up here so you can see it. Well, Jesus is saying that he is the cornerstone. He is the one that the religious leaders have rejected, And if they have eyes to see it, they'd realize that Jesus is the cornerstone of God's plan of salvation. They'd recognize his authority. They'd know that Jesus is actually the king that they've been looking for. Now, the second part of what Jesus says is in verse 18. It comes from Isaiah 8, which we read earlier, where God himself is to be feared and God himself is going to come and crush and punish Israel for their sin. See, the religious leaders are a bit like unfaithful Israel in the time of King Ahaz when God acted on judgment on his people. The first time I did Andy's chasm at a pack saddle, I slipped on a rock and fell on it. And rocks are really unforgiving. I had a nice big bruise on the side of my leg that lasted for over a week. Thankfully, though, the rock didn't break me to pieces. But that's kind of the image that Jesus uses here. It's this image from Isaiah 8, where if you fall on the cornerstone, you get shattered to pieces, like when you drop a glass and it just goes... Or a rock falls on you and you get crushed. It's graphic. But we should take it to heart, for it reminds us that anyone who rejects the stone, anyone who rejects Jesus, will be judged. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, the religious leaders, they're perceptive enough to realize that Jesus is talking about them in this parable. Verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew that he'd spoken this parable against them. Not only is he not working under their authority, but he's condemning them before all the people in the temple. But once again, they hold back because they're scared of the people. So they don't arrest Jesus yet. See, Jesus needs to become our cornerstone our foundation stone. If Jesus is our cornerstone, he is the foundation stone of our lives. Instead of us falling on him or he falling on us, when we trust him, he is the one we stand on, hold on to, take shelter in. Because we know that even as Jesus in this last week of his life moves towards his death, He's doing that for us. 
Jesus is the cornerstone that saves us from the judgment of God, who forgives our sin. And when we live live under Jesus' authority, Jesus, by his spirit, will shape us and mould us so that we become like him. The cornerstone sets the direction of the building to make sure that it's square. Well, that's what Jesus does with us. As we listen to his words, as we put them into practice, as we obey his authority, our life will be changed. It says deny, Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and follow him. To have a new foundation for our life. Well, this passage is a call to recognize Jesus' authority, to make him our foundation. Last week we saw the need to recognize Jesus' significance. This week we see that we need to recognize Jesus' authority and not undermine it. So here is the question. Will you recognize Jesus' authority? Will you let Jesus be your cornerstone, your foundation? And here at church we sing a song called Cornerstone. And some of the lyrics are uh, Cornerstone, Christ alone, and it talks about how Jesus is Lord, Lord of all. But also in that song, the first verse says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. That's what it means to have Jesus as our cornerstone. Wholly trust in his name, to recognize his authority, to accept him as our saviour and our Lord. So will you recognize the authority of God's son, whom God loves, who gave his life for you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus came and he taught with your authority. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to acknowledge that authority, to live under his word, that we would be people who uh, have our lives shaped by Jesus uh, so that we can be more like him, so that we can grow to maturity in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.